So we start off this morning and uh, the race is about to begin. It's a young Michael Phelps very much in his prime and he's just about to jump in the water and he's having a quick conversation with his coach ahead of time, Bob Bowman. And this is usually the point when coach kind of leans in and and you don't really coach Michael Phelps all that much at that point, but you just kind of lean in and, and like remind him of what he already knows. Some last minute uh, reminders on, on form or technique before he goes out and he inevitably wins uh, another race. Especially because uh, this is uh, a Michael Phelps that's just coming across, just coming off uh, an Athens Olympic win where he uh, had a medal haul of six Olympic gold medals as a teenager. This is a race that's not the Olympics, it's not the world, it's more of a regional thing for Phelps just about to jump in the water. This race is like an elevated practice. Uh, for everybody else it might be a race, but for him, he knows what's going to happen. The crowd, the other uh, opponents know what's going to happen. His coach knows what's about to happen. And so his coach leans in and instead of giving him these last minute reminders on form or technique, he does something a bit unexpected. He leans in uh, to Phelps and he takes his his goggles from him, with only minutes before the race begins, and he breaks them. He tosses them off to the side, and he goes, now jump in the water and win the race. (laughs) Jump in the water and win the race? Dude, you just took away my goggles. I can't see anything. How am I supposed to jump in the water and win the race? And the advice that he gives is, you've done this before. (laughs) Swim to the end of the pool and come on back. You know how many strokes it takes to get to the end of the pool. You dive off the starting blocks, it's going to take 16 strokes to get there. Push off the wall, it's going to take 20 strokes to get back. Repeat until the race is done, you got this. And of course, we can look at this and say there's so many things, so many possibilities that that could very well go wrong, right? Uh, He starts to veer a little bit to the left or to the right. He has to do it with his eyes closed, after all. If he veers into his opponent's lane, he's disqualified. Worst case scenario, if he miscounts his strokes, gets to the end of the pool, and slams his head up against the concrete barrier, he doesn't win the race. We're in a series right now uh, called Your God is Too Small. And the idea of the series is not that God is too small, but the boxes that we put God in are oftentimes far too small. And so what we're doing is we're taking these competing images of God, the box that we put him in, and then also a new image uh, comes to us from scripture that allows him to be who he is. Uh, so one of the installments of this series was uh, that God is, God is not a cop around the corner with his radar gun out, just ready, to, ready to, to nail you for going 10 miles an hour over the speed limit. He's waiting for you to mess up so he can get you. No, no. The image that we heard from God in Luke chapter 15 is he is a father not walking but running out to you and I his wayward children coming home. He's about to prodigally and recklessly lavish us with his love and affection. That's who God is. He's a father, not a cop around the corner. Uh, Last week we heard about the vending machine God, uh, the kind of God where we put in uh, a couple of coins and a couple of prayers. We push the button to the combination and then we get out whatever it is that we ask for. And we said, God is not a vending machine. He's better than that. Uh, God is like a, uh, a skilled artist, and we are the clay in the palm of his hands, ready to be shaped and to be molded. Um, today, today, we're talking about a, a kind, of, kind of a blueprint, formula, recipe sort of God. He's a blueprint God. Um, you follow the instructions, and you know what you're going to get. 
uh, that, that God is oftentimes we're led to believe he's like a recipe out of the box. You don't have to be a good baker or a good chef to be able to follow some instructions to a T and then pull your desired meal or dessert out of the oven when it's complete. Follow the instructions and you know what you're going to get. Um, God is not a, a rigid formula kind of God where you just uh, input your numbers and it's the same answer every single time because I'm told that's how math works. God isn't like a blueprint kind of God where you take your idea over to the designer or to the architect and they compile just sheets on sheets on sheets of blueprints and you take those to the construction manager and the construction teams you say, this is what I'm trying to build. And they follow those instructions to a T. And what you end up with at the end of the day or at the end of the season is a beautiful house, a beautiful apartment, office building, whatever it is that you're trying to make. God is not any of those things because sometimes you have a plan and you come and you bring it up to God and you're going I've got this thing all worked out and this is what I need from you and he looks right back at you and he breaks your goggles and you're going God that wasn't in the recipe that wasn't in the design that's not what I had in mind you sit down and your boss is going I've got some good news and some maybe bad news, depending on how you take it. The good news is you are an invaluable part of this company and we will always have a place for you. The bad news is that place is no longer here. We're shutting this office down before you ask. Remote work is not currently on the table, so just forget about it. We get to move across country. Just before your oldest child enrolls in college, we get to move across country. How do you feel about that? It's a broken glasses kind of moment. God, this is not the plan <laughs> that I thought we had worked out. I really needed you to show up here. I got the plan that we had worked out was that when I would enroll in college, I would pick the college because of their nursing program and I would get into said nursing program. But when I show up, on campus, I learned very, very quickly that this is not for me. What am I doing here? It's a broken glasses kind of moment. God, what are you doing? We had a plan, and you're supposed to execute the plan. We were supposed to be together forever. In 10 minutes into this speech, that she has prepared and she's just reading it, I realize she's breaking up with me. It's a broken glasses kind of moment. We had a plan and God, you were supposed to execute the plan. And then some lovely Christian comes along and says, did you know that when God closes a door, he always opens a window and you have my permission to punch them? <laughs> I'm obviously kidding. Please don't take that out of context. Maybe emotionally. No, just stay, stay the punching aside. The problem with that, right, is that you read through Scripture and Scripture. There's so many stories in this book about when God follows through on all of these things. When, when there's like some kind of a setback and it's really a setup to your comeback, right, and that God like helps you out with all of these things. There's these incredible stories. You see Noah, he's out, God tells him to build a, a, a boat in the middle of the desert and everybody's laughing at him until it starts to rain and then who's laughing, right? There's a little, neat little bow tied on the end and you're like, what an awesome plan, God. Or you get the Job story where like everything is taken away from Job. But by the end of the story, he has twice as much as what he started off with. And there's this nice little bow on the end. That's fantastic. What a great plan, God. 
You even get the story of like Jesus, Jesus showing up up to, to the home of Lazarus four days late, four days after his funeral. And she says, Jesus, he stinks now. His body is decomposing. Jesus, if you were here, my brother and your friend wouldn't be dead. She's probably not wrong. And Jesus calls out to the grave, Lazarus, come on out. And the dead man came out. What a fantastic little bow that is. This morning, there's not going to be a little bow on it. And I want you to be prepared ahead of time for that fact. Uh, This morning, we don't have uh, a promise or a proverb, a pithy little saying. But this morning, we have a story that I would like us to gather around and to journey with it and to try to figure out how God might be offering us some hope through it. Uh, We're going to go in just a moment to Mark chapter 6. You can follow along if you like. The words are going to be on the screen. But before we do, there's a few characters in the story that I just want to highlight for you. So when we read the story, we know a little bit of who we're talking about. Uh, The first character that we don't hear about, but he's kind of the background of everything that happens. His name is Herod the Great. He's not great because he's such a great guy. Very much the opposite of that one. He's great because he's greatly paranoid and he's greatly atrocious. And he did some really greatly awful things. He also built a lot great buildings, uh, but that's kind of a tangential to this part of the story when we find out that he uh, killed three of his sons. He also killed two of his wives and one mother-in-law. There's a mother-in-law joke in there somewhere, but because this is broadcast online, I thought, I'm not going to make it. I'm not going to make it. That's a safe bet. Uh, Herod the Great. And also because of who he was as a person, he named all of his kids, and he had plenty of them, some variation of his own name, which I look this up, and like George Foreman, the boxer, did the same thing. I don't know if he got this, but all of George Foreman's sons are named George Foreman. And that doesn't have anything to do with it. I just think he maybe took a few too many blows to the head, and like that's what you get. Herod did it as well. He was probably a boxer at one point in his life. He names all of his kids some variation of Herod. So it's a little confused when you read it. But Herod the Great is the Herod in the Bible when Jesus was born and Herod had all of the babies in Bethlehem killed. It's it's a horrible thing, right? The whole village, two and under, the baby boys. It's an awful thing. That's Herod the Great. And because Herod the Great wanted everybody else to be just like dad, he gave them all his name and said, this is the kind of person that I... I really want you to be. So we get a couple of other characters. One of them is named uh, Herod Philip, and the other one is Herod Antipas. And they're both kind of called Herod at different times in the story, and just the reader is supposed to know. They knew back then, like, of course it's who it is. It's the governor over, you know, Galilee and and Jerusalem. So, So we know who he's talking about. It can be a little bit confusing. These are the characters, Herod Antipas and Herod Philip. Uh, Herod Philip ended up marrying a woman. Her name was... And you guessed it, Herodias. It's the lady version of Herod, right? Exactly. Very confusing. So Herod Philip marries Herodias. There's going to be a test on this later, so make sure to remember it all. And then Herod Antipas, one time, uh, is visiting Herod Philip, falls in love with his brother's wife, ends up having an affair, marries her. So now she's like the kind of the queen uh, with Herod Antipas. That Thanksgiving must have been an incredibly awkward ordeal, right? So there's like some bad blood in the water. There's all of this is happening in the background. Now that is the train wreck of the Herod family story. And you can Wikipedia that. It gets far worse. 
Contrast that with a Bible character that we're going to follow today. His name is John the Baptist. This is as opposed to his cousin, John the Lutheran. Different guy. I'm kidding. It doesn't have anything to do with that. But John the Baptist, uh, he was known as John the Baptist because that's what he would do. Uh, He would baptize people. Uh, he, would, he would mark their new life of coming to God, turning around, repenting, literally 180 degrees, uh, running away from God, turning to God, and he would mark that with this water baptism. It was, it was a cool picture, and I'm, I'm sure for John the Baptist, he loved that he was known as John the Baptist. Uh, John the Baptist was known uh, for a couple of other things. He had kind of a funky diet of uh, like wild, uh, he had locusts and wild honey. And I was just imagining earlier this week, the, the dangerous situation it would be to try to uh, procure wild honey. Like, that sounds terrible to me. Uh, but that's what, that's what he ate. And then uh, he had this knack for calling people out. And that's going to be an important part of this story because he looks at the uh, established leaders at the time. He looks at uh, the, the religious leaders at the time. And he looks at uh, Herod at the time sitting on the throne, kind of the governor of the area. And he's going, you brood of vipers. He calls them names. He names their sin. He goes, you know, every sin has got a gotcha and God doesn't want it to get you. And he's just, he's like naming what's going to happen to them, you know, because of all this stuff that takes place. And the, the religious leaders, the kind of the elite in the community, the political leaders, they can't stand this guy because he just always calls it like it is. Everybody else in the region just loves him. Because who does this? Like, who just goes in front of Herod and going, hey, you know how you had an affair with your brother's wife and now married him? Yeah, that's not right, dude. You shouldn't do that. And everybody's going, who says that? Who looks at the religious leaders and goes, you guys are a bunch of toxic vipers, like snakes in this pet? Who says that? And so the crowd just absolutely loves it, and they eat it up. They come to him, they get baptized. It's kind of this movement that's starting. And you can understand why Herod, Antipas now, doesn't, totally love John the Baptist. And so we pick up the story in Mark chapter 6, starting off in verse 17. For Herod, I got to get on the screen here, um, for Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, had him bound and put in prison. Now he did this because of Herodias. We learned about her. So we've got Herod Antipas had him arrested because Herodias, his brother Philip, Herod Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John, the Baptist that is, had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful, that's an important word right there, for you to have your brother's wife. And before we go on, I just want to highlight when he says it's not lawful, uh, there's, there's a contrast in the, throughout this story between the Jewish law and the Roman law. And when he says it's not lawful, he means by the Jewish law, it's not lawful for this thing to happen. By the Roman law, it's really, really sort of like anything goes. And because Herod is a Roman governing the Jewish people, he's kind of he's caught in the middle. And so he thinks it's okay because it's like Roman laws, everything goes. Uh, but, for, but, for, uh, but for the Jewish people, he's saying it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But she wasn't able to because Herod feared John and he protected him, knowing him, two key words, to be a righteous and holy man. And when Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. And I just want to like kind of draw this side note on the story um, that even by Herod's account, this guy did everything right. He called, it, he called it like he saw it. He was, quote, a righteous and holy man. Yet at this point in the story, he ends up in prison. 
And I want to invite you to like write yourself into that story and say, have there been times when you've tried to do everything right, yet you found yourself suffering consequences that you really didn't think that you should have to suffer? Like, come on, I'm, I'm sitting down right now and I'm trying to figure out whether or not I should do this cross-country move or lose my job. And with everything that I have on my plate, and then you see like your neighbor who doesn't give another thought about anything, like pulling his boat out of the garage on the weekend, and you're going like, that guy doesn't have a worry in the world. I mean, I've seen what kind of life he lives, and he doesn't, he doesn't have to make decisions like him. Why him and not me? In the story that we're reading, John the Baptist has, um, he has some decisions to make. He staked his life on Jesus being the one. He staked his life on Jesus being the Messiah, being the Son of God. And he's in prison. And this is what I love about reading Scripture because it's, it's real people, it's real places. And they have real concerns and real worries. And we find in these next few verses just how relatable John, even John the Baptist is to a lot of us. He's in prison and he starts to, he starts to identify a seed of doubt. And he goes, what if I got it wrong? What if Jesus wasn't who he said he was? And we say around here, listen, doubt isn't the opposite of faith. Doubt is a part of faith. Apathy is the opposite of faith. Jesus shows up in doubt. So John is this, this very likable character for us right now because we see him and he's real and we see him and he's vulnerable. What if I got it wrong? And so he hatches a little plan to, just to make sure that he didn't get it wrong. And we don't hear these next few verses from Mark, who's recording this story. I uh, love reading the Jesus stories in the Bible because there's four accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John's account, a different John. And, uh, and, and so we see the same thing told four different ways. So we're going to jump over to Matthew's account to kind of fill in some of the gaps to help us understand a little bit what John the Baptist was experiencing wrongfully imprisoned. Uh, and he's asking those questions, those seeds of out. What if I got it wrong? And so Matthew says that when John was in prison and he heard about the deeds of the Messiah, that's Jesus, he sent his disciples to go ask Jesus, are you the one who is to come or should we expect somebody else? That's a big question. Jesus, I always thought you were the one. I was the, you know, the, the, the lamb of the God, lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I was the one who said, I'm not even worthy to untie your sandals. I thought you were the Messiah. Are you? Because I'm here in prison and it's starting to look like maybe you aren't who I thought you were. And so he sends his followers to go talk to Jesus' followers and say, listen, I'm, I'm in a bad place right now and I just need to be reminded of what's true. And Jesus sends this reply back. And he goes, go back and give this report to John as to what you hear and what you see. And, and before we go on, uh, we're going to see this reference from Jesus uh, quoting and pulling from the Old Testament book of Isaiah. And it's, it's a little bit in the weeds, and so I kind of want to just summarize a little bit for you. Um, Isaiah in the Old Testament was the favorite book uh, for the Jewish people living in the time of Jesus. It was a favorite book because they could really identify with it 
And Isaiah the prophet is writing this time and place when the people of God, Israel, ancient Israel, is really in an awful place. I mean, Assyria, Babylon are knocking on their, on their door. It looks like everything is going to be lost. Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. And they're going to live their whole lives and the next generation too along with it in this kind of like subjugated, oppressed time. Fast forward and the names and faces have changed, but the problems have not. So the Jewish people in Jesus' day can really identify with the Jewish people in Isaiah's day because even though it wasn't the Assyrians and the Babylonians or the Persians and the Greeks, it's now the Romans who are the overlords, the Romans who are the oppressors. And the people are still like reading Isaiah the prophet when Isaiah says, listen, it's bad right now, but it's not always going to be that way. It's bad right now, but there's going to be a time of peace And it's not just peace, like we're not going to be at war with the countries around us anymore. There's going to be this peace that's going to like press forward on injustice. There's going to be this this peace that passes all understanding. And it's really hard to describe, but all of this is going to be ushered in by the Messiah. And, And who the Messiah is and just how he's going to operate. Again, it's difficult to put it into words. It's easier to say you kind of know it when you see it. But some of the marks and some of the things that are going to happen around this time of the Messiah are a few things. Uh, The first thing is that deaf people are going to be able to hear. Uh, The lame, the people who are paralyzed, are going to be able to walk, Isaiah says, even dance. The blind will have their eyes open. Those suffering from incurable skin diseases, uh, like leprosy, are going to be cleansed once and for all, and along with it, be brought back into the community. Prisoners are going to go free, and the dead will rise from their graves. And John the Baptist knows that's the Messiah. And he sends a group of his followers out to ask Jesus, are you the one? Or have I gotten it wrong? And this is the answer that Jesus gives. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the good news is proclaimed to the poor. For those of you astute listeners, was there one of those things that I mentioned that was maybe conspicuously absent on the list? And the prisoners will go free, right, Jesus? The prisoners are going to go free, though, right? I only ask because I have somewhat of a vested interest in the result of the prisoners going free, Jesus. Jesus is far too clever, far too smart, far too intentional to have accidentally left the most important one off the list. Now, what Jesus is doing is he's saying, I am the Messiah. All of these things are true. But John, there will be no bow tied on your story. You're not getting out of here. And this is really the crux of uh, our time this day. Because if I'm John, I'm looking at Jesus and I'm going, dude, we're closer than that, man. We're cousins. We grew up together. Jesus, I'm here in prison, 
and you're off healing, you're off healing the Romans, you're healing the bad guys. Jesus, I'm here, in, your cousin is here in prison, and Jesus, you're off at a wedding right now that I should have been invited to doing party favors for the guests, and you've forgotten about me. Where's my miracle, man? It's easy for us, I think, to get bitter because of the small God that we've put him into. And I just, I want to, I want to explain what I mean by that. It's because when our circumstances go a certain way, we start to, we quickly start to doubt the goodness of God in those moments. That, that we have this tendency, we measure God's goodness by our circumstances, don't we? We measure our, we measure God's goodness by our circumstances. So it's like, hey, listen, the dog didn't pee on the carpet. God, aren't you great? You are so good. And then the next night, the cat gets mysteriously unlitter box trained, and you're like, God, God, why have you hidden your face from me? Why are you, why do you allow bad things to happen to good people, right? We have this way of, of like measuring God's goodness in light of our circumstances. So when things are going really, really well for me, I have no problem praising God and worshiping him. I mean, after all, he's just so great. But when things are not going so well, come on, it's so much harder to offer up those praises because we start to wonder, has he forgotten about me here? Is he still good after all? If I could kind of like pinpoint it a little bit more and be so bold is to, is to name, I guess, just the problem, the problem with that. Measuring, evaluating God's goodness in light of our circumstances. And there's a couple things. It's self-centered, right? And it's hard to hear, and I recognize that. And so with as much pastoral empathy, and I, I know it's coming through, it's self-centered. It's also very small. And that's really where the series comes from. That God is, your God is too small. That it's just a short sample size. That really like what we're saying in those moments is I don't think that God could do anything unfathomable. God couldn't do anything beyond comprehension for me. That God has to follow the plan just exactly because if he does something that I didn't expect him to do, well, I guess then he can't be God. And really in those moments, if your God can't do anything surprising or unthinkable or incomprehensible, who's God in that moment? Is it him or is it you? And do you want a God who's no bigger than your own and my own limited imaginations? I, I want to submit to you Instead of measuring, evaluating God's goodness in light of our circumstances, what if we flip those things around? And what if we measured our circumstance in light of God's goodness? What I mean by this is like John in prison, and he's going, I, I don't understand, but I'm going to hold on to the goodness of God. And we have something that John didn't have, because we look at the goodness of God and we're going, man, I have a cross and an empty grave that says, yes, he's good. Yes, he loves me to death and back again. Yes, he's strong and capable. Yes, he cares so incredibly much. And because I know he's good, whatever my circumstance is, you know what's going to grow in that garden? It's not bitterness and it's not doubt and it's not apathy. What's going to grow in that garden is resiliency. What's going to grow in that garden is trust, is hope, is grace. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be empathy for those around me. 
Because I know I have a God who cares. I know I have a God who's strong. And I know I have a God who loves me to death and back again for new life. And so for John, still in prison, back to the story it's told to us from Mark. Finally, the opportune time came. And I just highlight this one more time that on, on his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials. It's just a, a fun kind of aside, just like the, the lawful thing. One of the differences that kind of got the people riled up is the, the cultural differences. Romans, they threw absolute ragers for their birthday parties, and Herod's no exception here. The Jewish people really never even recognized it. So it's just one of those notes to the readers again, like us, and going, man, this guy is just so out of touch. Okay, on his birthday, Herod gave this banquet for his high officials, military commanders, leading men of Galilee, and when the daughter of his brother's wife, now his wife, his stepdaughter slash niece came in and danced... She pleased Herod and his dinner guests. And I recognize it's a holiday weekend at church here. And so, like, we're just going to assume, like, it was just the floss or something cool. Like, the, like I mean, it's just a TikTok dance. It's very, all very innocent. It's possible it was ballet. Don't Google it. Just take my word for it and just kind of move on. But she pleases Herod and his dinner guests. And the king said to the girl, wow, right? Ask me for anything, anything you want and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with his oath, whatever I will give you, listen, up to half my kingdom. What a statement. What a statement, especially because the kingdom wasn't his to give away, right? She knows it's an empty promise. It doesn't belong to him. It belongs to Rome. It belongs to Caesar. He can't. He's a tenant living in a borrowed house. He can't give away half his kingdom, and she knows it. So she goes back to her mom, Herodias, and she's like, okay, I know it's not the kingdom. I can't ask for that, but maybe an iPhone? Maybe I can get a pony out of this deal? Possibly a college education? The girl asked the, hurried into the king with a request. I want you right now, she says, talking to her mom, to give me the head of John the Baptist on the platter. We know how Herodias advised her daughter. And Herod now, Antipas, caught in front of everybody because it was a huge rager after all, and he's got to figure out, do I go back on my promise, embarrass myself? Or do this thing. Greatly distressed because of his oath and his dinner guests. <laughs> he didn't want to refuse her. So immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. And that's the end of the story. There's not a little bow on it. It's not neat. And it's not tidy. I guess what I'd like us to do is to look at a story like this and see John for who he is. I mean, we have a story here, and we know everybody's fallen short of the glory of God. We know that John is a broken, fallible human being, just as in need of salvation as every single one of us. But he's also in this moment a guy who is obedient through the end, practicing truth through the end. Submitting to Jesus, your will, not my will, through the end. And it's his head. He's got to pay for that kind of loyalty, allegiance to his Lord and Savior. And so it's easy for us to look at the story and go, come on, God. What'd you do that for? Come on, God. 
A cross-country move right now? Come on, God. A breakup when I think that this thing is going to like go the distance? Come on. Why can't I get into the program? Why can't I get into the school? We had a plan here, God, and you didn't follow through. It's easy for us to do that. But what I'd like to do is to, to, to like drop in on John the Baptist's world and just ask him the question. If he could do anything over again, if he could take it all back, if he could relive his whole life, would he? I mean, come on. I, I think that if he was here right now and he was going to speak in this, he'd be like, absolutely not. There's not a thing that I would change. Even though he lost his head in prison, it's like he showed no doubt all the way through to the end. And the difference between John the Baptist and that moment, and I'll just say me, and maybe a couple of you can relate to this, is that John knew what I don't. John knew the distinction between a couple of things. John knew the difference between the plan and the purpose. And he thought that he had a pretty good grasp of the plan in that moment until his coach and our Lord cracks open his goggles and he's going what you thought was the plan was no longer going to be the plan and John trusted the purpose he didn't need to understand the plan to trust the purpose and so when he looks back at his life and going man I lost my head for this thing yet my purpose in life was and always will be simply to point the way to the Messiah to point the way to Jesus I'm not the savior he's the savior I'm not the Messiah but I get to point to the one who is the Messiah I get to do this and so he looks back on his life and he's going I got to do it I got to be a footnote in the greatest story ever told come to think about it Jesus really gets this too he didn't like the plan very much. We see this picture of Jesus and he's on his hands and he's on his feet in the garden. He's pleading with his father going, I don't like the plan, God. I don't like the plan, Father. Take this cup away from me. I don't want to die. I don't want to be arrested. I don't want to be whipped. I don't want to be mocked. I don't want to have rusty nails through my hands and through my feet. I don't want to be abandoned by everybody that I love, that I think loves me. Yet... I also know the purpose. And so even though I don't like the plan, I get the purpose. It's just salvation, grace, creating the church, the epicenter of hope and light in the dark world. So, not my will, but thy will be done. I want to come on back to that story. It was a 2008 Beijing Olympics. It's like a couple of years after that little race where uh, practice, elevated practice session where coach opened up his, his goggles. At this time, a gold medal is on the line. Phelps is uh, getting ready to jump in the water. He is expected to win every single event that he has scheduled. And so far he has. He jumps up on the starting block. It's a 200 meter flight. Uh, out and back, out and back, you're done. He dives into the water and his goggles slip off his face. It's like this fluke one in a million kind of thing. He's in an, an Olympic gold medal race and his goggles start to fill with water. He has no choice but to close his eyes 
for 175 meters. He's racing with his eyes closed. He goes, we trained for this. Out and back, out and back. 16 strokes out, 20 back. Kick, 20 strokes out, 20 back. He ends the race, and you got to see the YouTube video later. He ends the race. He hits it, the, the, the wall with a, with a timer. He beats his opponent by one one-hundredth of a second. And just for context, it's the smallest amount that they put on the screen that they display. For context, a blink is 33 hundredths of a second. He not only wins the gold medal, he also sets a world record in that moment. I wonder if it had anything to do with his coach taking him off to the side and saying, there's going to be some things that we're going to practice in a way that you're not going to like. But I don't need you to understand the plan to trust the purpose. What I'd like to encourage you later today, maybe on your ride home, in just a quiet moment, is just to ask God, help me. Help me when I don't understand the plan to trust your purpose. I invite you to stand up and let's pray together. God in heaven, you have uh, plans that are so infinitely greater, larger, higher than ours. God, we get upset when it seems like you don't play by our rules. Help us to trust you. Help us to hold on to you. God, in those moments when the floor drops out, uh, teach us again what it means not to look at our circumstances and evaluate your goodness, but to look at this empty cross and to know that you love us and you have not only our interests, but our highest interests in mind. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.